Well, good morning again, and welcome to week number three of our series called Stop Acting Like a Christian. And I know on the surface level, some of you are thinking, I can't believe that a preacher would tell me that I should not act like a Christian. And so let me review with you just some overarching concepts that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, namely that being a Christian is different than acting like a Christian. That Christian isn't something we do, it's someone we are. It's about being instead of doing. And so in, the, in, in light of that, I want us today to ask a simple elementary question. I want us to go to the very basics of Christianity. And I want us to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And how do you become a Christian? Now, let me acknowledge a couple of different audience members today, not specifically, but there are some of you here in this room today that have been in church possibly your whole life. Um, All you've known is church, and you've been taught from a young age what it means to be a Christian and how to live a Christian life. Um, That's the camp that that I fall into. Um, And and I want to acknowledge that there's probably some of you here in the room today that would not call yourself a Christian. In fact, there's probably some of you in the room that look at Christians and you probably think that Christian is not something that you aspire to be because you don't really like Christians. You don't like the way they act. And the way that they act seems like you would have to give up a lot to be like them and you don't particularly see the trade-off being uh, advantageous. Today, I'm not trying to convince you one way or another I simply want to help you understand what it means to become a Christian and how to become a Christian. So before you kind of throw up some guards and say, I know he's about to lay on a guilt trip on me and I'm going to put up my defense wall and I'm going to keep him out. I just want to ask you to relax. I'm not here to convince you to do something that you don't want to do. And I'm not here to prove that you're wrong about life. I just want to share with you some things that I believe are true based on uh, the Bible and some things that are written in the Bible. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Chances are, if I asked just people in this room, there would be dozens of different answers when it comes to defining Christian and what it means to be a Christian and what that looks like. For some of you, it would go back to your history and your upbringing and the type of family that you were raised in, and you would just say that I've been a part of a Christian family, and so by nature that makes me Christian because that's how I was raised, and I wasn't raised in a different religion, and so I was kind of born into this Christian thing. And for some of you, you would tie Christian to uh, perhaps a certain behavior or a certain Um, experience. Maybe for some of you uh, that looks like maybe being sprinkled or maybe that looks like being baptized or maybe that looks like completing a class and and maybe that was called confirmation and you thought that once you completed a class it automatically made you a Christian and uh, perhaps some of you it means attaining certain amounts of knowledge so that you can know the things of God so that that will make you Christian because you're smarter than some people when it comes to Uh, saying what the Bible means or even saying uh, particular verses from the Bible and quoting those. Uh, For some of you, uh, Christian would be defined simply as a a judgmental, angry person uh, who secretly likes to look down their nose and point their finger at people and make themselves feel better that they're not as bad as others. We probably have some of those in the room, I'm guessing, that you just see Christian as... Um, as a a type of person that you don't really like 
And I'll be honest with you, uh, I sometimes lean your direction more than you would think because sometimes Christians aren't great people. They're not great people sometimes when they act in certain ways. Um, And we all get lumped into this thing called Christian, but Christian is really a broad term. It's defined in different ways. Uh, It's everything from uh, a religion to a relationship and everything in between. And people can say they're Christian and be completely different from other people who say they're Christian. And so the question becomes like, what is a real Christian and what does that look like? And how do you become one? How do I know if what I think is Christian is really Christian? Some of you would say things like, well, you know, I some." I used to be a Christian or I was a Christian, but I'm not a Christian anymore. And then there's some of you that would say, well, that's not even possible. Like you can't undo being a Christian. And so uh, you're just on different scopes of things altogether. Some of you would say, you know, you're stuck being a Christian. If you want to, if you decide to be a Christian, and even if you don't like being a Christian, you can't get out of being a Christian and it just stinks for you because you're stuck. And some of you are like, well, I don't want to be stuck, so I don't want to start something to begin with. And then some of you simply think that being a Christian is a mental decision. And you think that the choice to become a Christian outweighs a lot of other choices in life. And so it seemed advantageous, and you decided to call yourself a Christian. But if we're being honest with ourselves, in light of the Bible, which I believe was inspired of God to instruct us, in the ways of following Jesus, Christian isn't particularly a biblical term. In fact, I know some of you just cringed, the word Christian is only found in the Bible three times. Three times in the New Testament, twice in the book of Acts, once in the book of uh, 1 Peter. Um, On all three occasions, the term Christian uh, was was given from an outsider's perspective of this view of a group of people who followed a man named Jesus, and this movement began to grow, and and the birth of what we call the church today resulted from that, and people began to live their lives in certain ways and begin to tell other people about it, and as it spread, people on the outside began to say, you know, those Christians... Just like some of us would look at people who are not like us, whether it's based on skin color or style of clothing, and we would say those, and there are derogatory terms that we say about people that aren't necessarily uplifting and good. And that's what the word Christian originally was. Let me give you an example. Acts chapter number 11. Acts chapter 11 was, we see here in the story that The movement of what we call Christianity, the movement of following Jesus and the way that he taught, had begun to spread throughout the earth that was known at that time. And it came to a place called Antioch, and people there began to believe, and there were Greek-speaking people. And and back in Jerusalem, where the church originated, people began to say, I can't believe that those people over there are actually believing. And so they sent a man named Barnabas to go check it out. And he was like, you're not going to believe like the people here. They really believe the same thing. God is doing here what he did for us there. And this is crazy. So he goes and gets a man named Saul, who later became known as Paul, to help him teach these people what it meant to be a Christian. And listen to what it says, Acts chapter number 11, starting in verse 25. It says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus, to look for Saul, because he had to get him to come with him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Listen to this. For a whole year, 
Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Lots of people, huge masses began to follow in this way. And Barnabas and Saul, who later came known as Paul, spent a whole year with this large group of people teaching them the ways of Jesus and what it meant to live this Christian life. But here's what I want to point out. It says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Before this group of people in Antioch became part of the church, the term Christian wasn't even in existence. In other words, those who were part of the church, they didn't call themselves Christians. They didn't say, hey guys, let's come up with a cool name for our movement. And I don't know, since we follow Jesus, who was the Christ, which by the way, just side note here, some people think that Jesus' last name was Christ. Um, Jesus' last name was not Christ. Christ is actually a title, Jesus the Christ. The Christ is uh, Greek for a Hebrew word Messiah, which means literally anointed one. And Jesus was the one sent by God. And so they called him the Christ. And so Jesus the Christ, not Jesus Christ, as in that's his last name. I have fun teaching my four-year-old that. He doesn't quite understand but Jesus the Christ, and they thought, you know, hey, we'll just call ourselves Christians because it's kind of close to Christ, and it'll make us look like Christ. And that seems great, right? That seems like it would have played out that way, but that's not the way it happened. See, it says, let's put that verse back up there again. It says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. You know, the people on the inside of the faith, they called themselves disciples. The people on the outside called them Christians, which was actually a derogatory tense aimed at, you know, that group of people over there that's growing and doing crazy things that we don't agree with. See, Christian is broad. It's, it's wide-reaching. It's, it's not clearly defined. It, it, it's answered in lots of different ways based on people's experience and beliefs. But disciple is very specific, don't worry, I'm not going to start a movement to start calling ourselves disciples instead of Christians. It's not that kind of approach. That's not what we're here for today. But listen to what disciple means. Disciple means learner, pupil, apprentice, follower. It's not a title given to someone who just half-heartedly says that they you know, fit into a category or a genre of people. It's a people who committed wholeheartedly their lives to following a man named Jesus and the teachings that he left for us. It's very specific. And the disciples were clear on their mission, on why they existed, and on their beliefs, which were based on writings that you know, we come to know now as Scripture. And so... We get confused sometimes when we use the word Christian to define disciple because some people may not be using Christian to define disciple. They may be using it differently. And so I want to talk to us today about what it means to be a disciple or what I would say a true Christian is. Someone who seeks to learn from others. Let's say, for instance, that you decided you wanted to be a doctor Okay, you say, how do I become a doctor? I want to be a doctor. You can't just dress up like my four-year-old and say, I'm a doctor. Look, you know, I got the stethoscope. Come here, let me listen to your heart. No, there's a process. You know, you commit to a process. You go to school. You do your residencies, you know. And in that process, what are you doing? You're trying to learn how to be a doctor. 
You're trying to study. You want to know how to do things that doctors do. And when the people who have been doctors long before you give you instructions as a disciple, you say, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Cool. I'm not trying to change what it looks like to be a doctor. I understand what it means to be a doctor. I'm going to submit to that. Cool. I need to do this. I need to change that. I need to learn that. I need to, you know, acknowledge this. I want to learn. The answer is yes. You just tell me what the, what the command is and, and I'm, I'm in because I, I want to do that. And so a disciple is someone who's committed and they say, I am living this life that follows Jesus. You just help me understand what that looks like and I'm, I'm in, I'm there. It's not a broad category or title that's flippantly tossed around. And my heart is that we would distinguish the difference between the two. So today, I'm not talking to you about a genre. I'm not talking to you about, you know, a lifestyle or a decision to be part of some category or some subcategory of people. I want to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In the early church, they call them followers of the way. And that way is clearly outlined in Scripture. And I want to give you a couple of couple of pieces of information to help you understand a couple of things today. Um, Number one, becoming a Christian is not simply a mental decision. Have you ever ever thought that, that being a Christian, that's someone who decided to do something? Maybe they, they heard about the advantages of being a Christian or they heard the disadvantages of not being a Christian and they decided, based on the information that I have, I want to make that decision to be part of that group of people. And you need to know that Becoming a Christian isn't simply a mental decision that you can't just say, you know, hey, I'm a Christian, and you know, like, hey, you know, I'm a Democrat, you know, or, or hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a vegetarian. Cool, like, I'm in the group now. It's actually a, it's actually a spiritual thing that happens. It's actually somewhat miraculous that there's a transformation that happens in our life, and something is done in us, and for us that we can't actually do for ourselves. That we can't be smart enough to make a decision, and we can't be good enough to earn, and we can't be, you know, understanding enough to figure it out. It's something a little deeper than that. So I'm going to give you two kind of references, um, and it's going to be some terminology that you've probably heard uh, if you've been around the church, that maybe this will help explain a little bit. In John chapter number 3, Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, okay? And Jesus has been teaching uh, around religious leaders. He's been performing miracles, and he teaches with an authority that the teachers of that day didn't know, uh, hadn't experienced. And so this man named Nicodemus, who was actually a religious leader, secretly in the night, he comes to Jesus. And he says, I know that you're different from the other teachers. I can see, I can sense that something's different. So, so, like, what's the secret? What do I have to do to have eternal life? Like, explain to me the difference between you and me and my group of people. And listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. 
So you have to be born again, and you want to talk about confusing. I mean, just read the account of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus, this well-learned man in religious things, says to Jesus, born again, like, I'm a grown man. How do I enter my mother's womb again to be born? That doesn't even make sense. And Jesus explained to him that he's not talking about a physical birth. Which, by the way, you've all been physically birthed. Congratulations, you passed the test. We're all here today. You have been born. Okay? So we're all in that same boat, like it or not. We have been born. You're awesome. You did a great job. Uh, some of your mothers didn't like the experience as much as others, but nevertheless, we're here today. We've been born. So to be born again isn't to have that same experience as adults, but it's rather to have a spiritual experience. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that you must be born of water, speaking physically, and of the Spirit. And so to be born again is to become a Christian, and it's something that happens on the inside. It's a spiritual transformation that happens where we actually come from death to life. We're born again. We live in this physical body by nature in a sinful world, and by nature we are spiritually dead. That's the world that we're born into. And so when we're born again, we actually come to life, spiritually speaking, and Jesus does something in us that we have never experienced before. I have officiated nine or ten weddings now, and part of my process in officiating weddings is to do premarital counseling, and in the premarital counseling that I do, I send the couple uh, just a short form by email that they're to complete and get back to me that just gives me some basic information, not only about the ceremony, but about their lives and their, um, their commitment to one another. And one of the questions that I ask is, are you a born-again Christian? Because I want to know, you know, who I'm dealing with and, and where do we start? I believe that marriage is a, a Christian uh, union, and so I want to know where we're starting. And uh, the last couple of people that I've married I have checked no. I'm not a born-again Christian. And so when we start the first counseling session, you know, I don't say, you're not a Christian, I can't marry you. You know, you're not good enough for me to do that. What I say is, you know, I noticed that you said on your form that you're not a Christian, and I want to kind of talk about that. And both times, they've said, what do you mean I'm not a Christian? I didn't say that. And so I'll pull the form out, and I'll say, well, it says right here, are you a born-again Christian? And they say, well, what's born-again mean? I don't, I don't get that. And I think that that's kind of a general consensus. You would say, you know, I know, I've heard of Christian. I don't know what that means, but born-again Christian. They're like, we thought that that meant like we used to be a Christian, and then somehow we did some stuff and we weren't a Christian anymore, and then we like redid the whole Christian thing, and so we were born again. And I was like, no, 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 John 3, John 3, 3, Jesus says that you need to be born again. It's a spiritual condition of receiving life, spiritually speaking. Have, have you experienced that? And they'll say yes. And I'll say, okay, so we're on the same page. Just so you know, now you've been born again. That's part of your experience. So the next time that you go through something in life and you're asked that question, you can answer it correctly. So being born again is part of becoming a Christian. It's something that you can't just decide to do. It's something that you can't just make happen. It's something that God does in us in our lives. Okay, so that's the first term, born again. The second term that I want to talk about um, there's a passage in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. It's written in a letter to the church in Rome, the Romans. 
uh, by a man named Paul, who we read about earlier, Saul, that helped Barnabas in Antioch. Uh, his name later became Paul because he was converted. So he was known kind of with two names. It was kind of weird. But he writes these letters, actually about half of the New Testament. One of the letters in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, he makes this statement that just gives hope to all of us, by the way, when he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You ever heard that term? You know, I've been saved you talked about being saved. I got saved at church. I got saved at summer camp. You know, I got saved at the retreat. You know, I got saved in church on a certain date. Got saved. What does that mean? You get saved from. Were you in danger? You know, you got saved. I like to think of our life as being lived in, in a vast ocean Okay, so imagine with me that you're in water, and as far as you can see, there's no land. Okay, there's no ships, there's no people, it's just you. You're out in the middle of this vast sea, this ocean, and, and there's no chance that you would ever be able to swim far enough to find land. And you live your life just trying to keep your head afloat because you want to live. You don't want to die. And so you struggle and you fight, and life's always chaotic, and you're always trying really hard to figure things out. How, how can I make a, a life vest for myself? How can I find a flotation device? How can I figure something out that will help me survive out here in this incredibly huge ocean when all of a sudden a helicopter comes along and lowers down a basket to you and you crawl into the basket and they pull you to safety. And they do for you what you could never do for yourself. That's being saved in a spiritual sense. And the sea is the sin in our lives and in the world. Sin is just a kind of a spiritual word that we use that means that we miss the mark when it comes to a relationship with God. That we miss the mark. And he comes to us in our mess, in our struggles, when we can't figure things out and where we don't know where to turn. And he does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Some people say, you know, I was saved from hell. And that's a good thing, that's a benefit, that, that when you become a Christian, you're born again, you get saved, that you will get to spend eternity with God in heaven, and that far outweighs the thought of you know, having to spend eternity in a place called hell. So that, that's a good thing. Uh, but ultimately, you're saved from yourself. You're saved from yourself. Because in our own strength, and in our own might, and in our own intellect... We can never escape this sea of sin. We're doomed to die. We're doomed to die. So we're born again. That's part of becoming a Christian. We're saved. That's part of becoming a Christian. But I want to talk to us for the last few moments in a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, again written by a man named Paul, about the beauty of becoming a Christian. And kind of what that looks like. And hopefully you'll, you'll be able to understand a little more why some people decide to call themselves Christians and, and we think that they just make a decision to follow him. Second Corinthians chapter number 5. Let me just jump in and start reading this for us. Famous passage of scripture here. I've, I quote this often because it's an incredible passage. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay, 
Some of you would say, I would love to be a new creation because I don't particularly even like myself. And so this is a great, great, great perspective. He's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Okay, so when Jesus does something in our life, he makes us into a new creation, okay? We're not deciding, I don't want to vote Republican anymore. I want to start voting Democrat, and so I'm going to align myself with a political party. We're not aligning ourselves with a religious association. Jesus is actually making us a new creation. We were born once, and we were a creation by birth, but he wants to make us completely new, spiritually speaking, That's beautiful. That's incredible news. Because some of us have pasts that are really ugly and shameful. Some of us have done some things we're not proud of. And some of us have some struggles even to this day that we can't get over. And we need someone to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. Verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You know what to reconcile means, don't you? You ever, you ever had that argument with a spouse or a son or a daughter or a mom and her dad or a coworker or a friend and, and whatever was said was hurtful or whatever happened was hurtful and there was a split in the relationship and hopefully there came a time in your life where you reconciled and you didn't hold that account, you didn't hold that debt, you didn't hold that transgression, whatever happened against one another, and, and you went back to the way things were before that happened. That's called being reconciled. And I love this because it says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Okay? So we were the ones that blew it. We were the ones that made the mistakes. We were the ones that that made the separation in the relationship. We we were the one that offended. We have the debt to pay. But God doesn't say to us, you know, as soon as you apologize, you know, we'll start talking again. You know, until, until you own up to your mistakes and soon, you know. He doesn't do that. It's beautiful. I can't believe that God, through Christ, initiates a reconciliation. He makes it happen even when we fail to do so and refuse to do so. His heart longs for reconciliation. And then through the church, he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. So we preach the message of Jesus in hopes that people will be reconciled to God. Verse number 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. This is huge. This is huge. God does not count your sins against you. He wants to be reconciled. He wants to have a relationship with you because he loves you. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. He's given us a mission. We speak on his behalf. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. And this is part of me today. I just want to implore you. I want to to present you an opportunity on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. You can have an incredible relationship with God. He doesn't look at the mistakes in your life and and allow there to be a separation, but he longs for there to be reconciliation, and all you have to do is receive it and accept it. Now, this is how it's done, and this just blows my mind. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, your mind won't just be blown like mine for the next couple of days and just think about this over and over like I have, but maybe it'll be good for you if you do. Verse 21 says that God made him, speaking of Jesus, 
who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you might not have caught it because no one's like clapping and cheering and, and no one's like throwing a party and dancing, but that's a really big deal that God did that for us. I mean, this is huge. This is like worth shouting and celebrating that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, okay? God loved the world enough that he sent his one and only son to the earth. He lived a perfect life. He never made mistakes. He was perfect and blameless. There was nothing that he did that caused any offense to God. He was perfect. He, he made no mistakes. And God made him who knew no sin, who was perfect, to be sin for us. Meaning he saw our messy lives. He saw how much we'd blown it. He saw our shortcomings and our failures, our hopelessness. And he said, Jesus, you become that hopelessness for them. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, that's what he did. He bore the sin of the world. He bore the weight of the world. He took upon himself your sin and my sin and the sins of everyone that's ever going to live and everyone that has lived. He took it upon himself and he became sin. God, Jesus, perfect, became sin for us. That in him, that in Jesus, if we're in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that? He doesn't say, look, you know, if you'll apologize and if you'll do this and if you'll make these things right, fix these things in your life, then you can be righteous. We get to be righteous because he took our sin away and he gave us his righteousness. Do you see that trade? It's like, I don't know. It's like, you know, me having like thousands of dollars of debt and not being able to pay the bills and some millionaire just comes and says, I'm going to take that debt. And by the way, hey, congratulations, you're a millionaire. I'm like, what? I have money now? I don't owe people stuff? No one's knocking on my doors telling me to pay up? Like, I'm the rich dude in town? Are you serious? That's what happened spiritually. We had debts, and Jesus took the debts for himself, and in the place, he gave us his righteousness. That's becoming a Christian. And just for those of you who might think, you know what, I, I think I have this figured out, and I'm a pretty disciplined person, and I try real hard at, at acting like a Christian, and, and I think I do a lot of the good things that I'm supposed to do, and I'm pretty much avoiding all the bad things that I'm not supposed to do. Here's just a piece of news for you. That Paul, who was one of the greatest followers of Christ and, and wrote so much to us, says that our righteousness, your righteousness, my righteousness, is like filthy rags compared to Christ. And just so you know, not to get graphic, he's not talking about like the type of rags that you wipe the floor with and they're now dirty. He's talking about menstrual cloths. And he's saying that, that your very best, your very best is far from what you hope to be. You will never on your own be good enough. You'll never on your own know enough. You'll never on your own be able to earn enough. It's not going to happen. Here's your hope. This is your only hope. Your only hope is to say, okay, you take my sin. I'll take your righteousness. We'll call it even, even though that's far from even. 
That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we can know and have a relationship with. I am just, my mind is blown that God would love me enough of all the 7 billion plus people in the world that he would think about me while he's on a cross and take my sins upon his shoulder and make available for me righteousness. It's got nothing to do with acting a certain way. It's just got to do with being born again, with being saved, with accepting the gift that he's offering me and allowing myself spiritually to come to life. It's an incredible incredible thing and I think that we just have a wrong view of what it means to become a Christian so here, here's what I want to do here's what I want to do not, not to manipulate you I'm not here to convince you of anything I was talking to someone in the last couple of weeks that we were just talking about how some people you know they choose not to believe the message of Jesus you know and then there's people who like to argue with them about why they're wrong and we're right and then the other people argue back and say, no, you're wrong, and, and I'm right. It's not about being right today. I'm not trying to convince you of something. I'm just trying to allow you to have an opportunity to experience becoming a new creation, trading the old for the new. It's less about understanding mentally and grasping every detail and being able to explain everything that happens. Listen, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know much about electricity, but I'll sure use it. Even though I can't explain how things work, like I can flip a switch and use it. Okay, today's not about like convincing you of all the knowledge that you need to make an appropriate decision. Today's just about saying, could there be a possibility that in your life you haven't experienced something that could change you forever? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the band to come and they're going to sing a song. It's, it's a song that's based off of uh, an old hymn, an old hymn that says, It Is Well. And uh, it's kind of been redone. And, and here's what I want you to do. And, and this may be hard for some of you. For others, it'll probably be easy. But I don't want you to participate during this song, meaning, like, please, there's no need to stand. And, and you don't have to raise hands. You don't have to sing. Um, I, I'm not trying to tell you you can't do those things and prohibit you from worshiping, but I'm just asking us all in the moment just to respect one another enough uh, to do this. Over the next few moments as we sing this song, would you just ask yourself, are things well with me in my soul, in my heart? Not like, am I doing okay physically? Do I need more money? Is there something that I can get from God? But just on a base level, are the words that they're about to sing true for me? And if they're not true for me, do I want them to be? Do I want them to be? And then I'm, I'm going to come back and I'm going to share a few more thoughts, just a few more minutes, and then I'm just going to give you an opportunity today to receive this thing called being born again, to, to experience being saved. And I'm not going to like belinger things and I'm not going to like you know really pound you hard and try to convince you and make you feel guilty about things and I'll explain why I'm not going to do that when I come back but as we sing this song would you just just ask yourself just ponder just reflect on the condition of your life and the condition of your soul and ask are the words of these songs true for me it is well I guess my question for us in this moment would be have you experienced 
becoming a Christian? Have you been born again? Have you been saved? For me, it was November 1st, 1987, 12 days before my eighth birthday. I'll never forget it. I was at a Baptist church and I walked down an aisle and I prayed a prayer with a pastor. Maybe some of you have done that. Maybe for some of you, it was at a summer camp or a retreat, or maybe some of you had a mom or dad that loved you enough to tell you some things that brought a reality to your life. You know, some people say, you know, I I don't remember when it happened. You know, I've just always been a Christian. And I'm not saying you have to know the date and the time, but, but when you become a Christian, you know you become a Christian. It's not like you're just thrown into a category. There is a new birth. There is something that takes place that's undeniable in one's life. And it leaves, it leaves you saying, it's well with my soul. And not to jump to next week, but it doesn't mean I'm perfect. Next week we're going to talk about, I've been born again, I've been saved, I've become a Christian, but i still got some things that are jacked up in my life. It doesn't mean you become perfect. We're going to talk about how to close that gap from from who you say you want to be and who you really are next week. But today, this morning, right now, it's that question, have you experienced that? And here's why I said earlier, I'm not going to try to convince you to make that decision because you may not like this piece of knowledge, but it's not simply a mental decision. Like, you can't just wake up one day and say, you know, I've been around these Christians for a while and they've kind of been wearing off on me and I think I'll give it a try. Because you know what happens when you make a mental decision? You can change your mind. I've made a couple of mental decisions to start a workout program called Insanity. Confession time here. I didn't always finish the workout program because it was insane and it hurt. And in the moment I said what I want for my life and the results that I want to get for it aren't worth doing the things that he's asking me to do. So I checked out. I need to start back. I don't want to convince you to do something and then later you're like, nah, didn't work out. Because you know what will happen? You'll go through a a hard time in life, you'll go through some tragedy, some some cards will be dealt to you that you don't like, and you'll say, this God thing's just not for me anymore. That's, That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not asking you to try the God thing. Here's why I say it's not a mental decision. John chapter number six. These are the words of Jesus, verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't just decide to be a Christian. You have to be drawn by God the Father. You have to be drawn by God the Father. He goes on to kind of reiterate this in verse number 65. It says, He wanted to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Again, this is something God does in you that you don't deserve and you can't earn. There's no magic formula for you here to fix your life. It's simply a God that loves you enough that he wants to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. 
namely to take your sin away, to give you his righteousness, to make you a new creation so that old things pass away and all things become new. That can happen for you today. So here's my question. Not have I convinced you intellectually or can I manipulate you to make some decision, but right now, do you feel the Father drawing you? Do you feel God's Spirit drawing you right now into a relationship with Him? You say, how do I know? For some people, it might be tears. For some people, you just feel this overwhelming sense of love. For some people, your, your palms get sweaty and your heart starts racing and you're like, if you don't stop talking, let me out of this room. I'm just going to burst. And that's simply God just drawing you to himself. He loves you. He longs to have a relationship with you. He's already done the work. He just wants you to receive it. It's available for everyone in the room. And so here's how I'm going to end the time together. I'm going to say a prayer. And if you would say, Bronson, I feel that God in this moment is drawing me and I want to be born again. I want to be saved. I want to become a Christian, not an intellectual decision, but a life transformation. I want to receive Jesus for myself. Then in this moment with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want you in your heart just to repeat this prayer after me. And listen, this isn't a prayer specifically found in scripture. It's not a, it's not a perfect word thing to say. It's just me leading you in a way to acknowledge to God, Hey, I feel you drawing me and I want to surrender my life to you and allow you to do in me what I can't do for myself. So if that's you right now in this moment, just repeat this prayer after me in your heart. Jesus, I get it. You love me. You want to make me new. I receive life in you. I allow you to take my sin. And I accept your righteousness. Thank you for paying my debt. And I accept Jesus as my Savior. I commit to live for you from this point forward and walk in my new reality. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.